The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Last time we took a look at the incredible achievements of Augustine, a luminary of the early Catholic Church, one of the most profound thinkers in Western history, and the author of a work the likes of which the world had never seen, The Confessions. We called this book an introspective autobiography and promised to draw a line between the confessions and today's modern understanding of what an autobiography sets out to do. We also promised to take a closer look at some key passages in the book. I've identified five key themes in Augustine's work. We'll take a look at those themes today, and we'll see how each of the themes lead up to the book's culminating passage. Part two of our look at Augustine's amazing book, The Confessions, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. What's our slogan? Stretch your mind and laugh your head off. No, no, that was the old show. I think our slogan for this one is taking a look at the history of literature from ancient epic to contemporary classic. So don't laugh your head off. Keep your head right where it is. On. We're off to a great start. People, this one has been a treat. Sometimes you read books... Then you let some time pass, you return to the book, and you hate it. It happens. And all that youthful enthusiasm, that's part of your new reading experience. Regret for who you were as a young, eager person. It can be embarrassing to think back to what we once loved. In this case, I had no regrets. Well, maybe I did have some. I regretted that I haven't spent more time with Augustine. He is sensational. How did this guy do all this? in the 4th century. I could imagine him walking around today with his furrowed brow and his intense, puzzled look, wrestling with his inner demons. Brian Cranston can play him in the movie. We'll call it Breaking Good. Okay, let's sell some fish. People, I know you're busy. You're probably multitasking right now, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that a podcast fits right into the rest of your busy life. Maybe you're exercising. Maybe you're in the car getting to where you need to go. Maybe you're checking email or asleep. That's all important. I'm just glad that you're including me and this show as one of your tasks. I'm happy to be part of the multi. Let me see if you have time for one more. A subscription to the podcast would help. A rating on iTunes, a review, a Facebook post. Sharing equals love, my friends. If you could Take a quick few seconds to help us out and spread the word. I would appreciate it. And then, back to your usual busy life. Okay, that's enough. Here we go with the Confessions of St. Augustine, Part 2. Last time, we talked about Augustine and his trips to the tragedies, to the Greek plays. He found them moving. Later, he regretted it. And in his analysis of why he had been moved by them, he ended up accusing them of being false and misleading and kind of missing the point. We gave Nietzsche's response to this, a hypothetical response, which was that Augustine was the one who was missing the point. That Augustine was shrinking from the experience, he was limiting himself as a human being, he was turning to God as a kind of weakness of spirit. Today, I want to highlight Augustine's reading. Augustine was not just a great theater-goer, he was also, he may have been one of the greatest readers who ever lived. He loved books, he turned to them for intellectual sustenance, and he was one of the best early chroniclers of the experience of reading. In a famous passage, he meets the man who will end up becoming his intellectual hero and spiritual mentor, Bishop Ambrose, and he marvels that Ambrose was reading without moving his lips. Silently reading, without moving his lips. The passage is often misunderstood. Some have confused the logic here, and they think it means 
that Augustine is claiming that Ambrose invented silent reading. We don't know that. He's the first person Augustine saw do that. That doesn't mean he's the first person ever, or even that Augustine was claiming that. What's compelling here isn't that Ambrose may or may not have been the first person to silently read. I doubt that he was. It's that Augustine, as a grown man, a scholar, had never seen that before. And it makes such a deep impression on him. It's such a difference from what he's used to seeing that Ambrose is reading just with scanning his eyes, not with moving his lips. That's what I found so compelling about this passage, because I like Augustine. I trust him as a narrator, and by this point in the narrative, I care about the things that happen to him and the impression that they make on him. Note to autobiographers, this is your most important task. Make your reader care. In Augustine's case, it's a little detail, but how much richness there is in details like this one. It gives us a sense of the scholarship that Augustine has had before. All the murmuring, chanting, sometimes loud, sometimes, no doubt, quiet, scene of individuals reading their works, and then the epiphany of seeing Ambrose reading in a way new to Augustine, communing silently with the words, no lips, no physical action other than eyes scanning the page, nothing verbal, just the work and the mind, like a prayer, a silent prayer, like a thought. Reading dissolves from performance into thought. I just stumbled into that phrase, but I like the way it encapsulates Augustine. Reading dissolves from performance into thought. In some ways, that describes his life and his agenda in this introspective autobiography. And it registers with him this moment like everything else. Augustine is such a fine observer, so sensitive to his surroundings, capable of turning the smallest sorry, the smallest anecdote into something worth considering, something that he will consider, and something we in turn care to consider as well. He makes his own life matter to us, and we're the better for it. We can think about our own life in such a way. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we have covered our first theme, Augustine as a reader. Again and again we see this in his confessions, his earliest years, what he read, what its impact was, what school was like, his trips to Rome, what he read there, what the impact was, what he argued about with his friends, what others were reading, what he saw people reading, how they were reading, what he gained from these books and what these books lacked. And of course, the sacred writings of the Old and New Testament, the most important books of his life. He has a distrust for storytelling, for myth, for anything that provoked his sentiment. Why? He seems to feel manipulated by these stories. He acknowledges enjoying them. It's not always clear whether he felt bad at the time. If there was an immediate hangover, or if his distaste came later, as the older man looked back at his early reading, feeling that it was not worthy of his real project, his purpose in life, to understand and glorify God. Here's what he himself says. Even to this day, I have been unable to make up my mind why I hated the Greek that was dinned into me in early boyhood. Latin studies, on the contrary, I loved. Not the elementary kind under my first teachers, but the lessons taught by masters of literature. For the early lessons in reading, writing, and arithmetic had been no less burdensome and boring to me than all the elements of Greek. What other reason could there be for this than the sinful, inane pride in my life, flesh as I was, a passing breath that comes not again? Those early lessons in literacy were unquestionably more profitable because more dependable. By means of them, I was gradually being given a power which became mine and still remains with me, the power to read any piece of writing I come across and to write anything I have a mind to myself. Far more useful then were those studies than others in which I was forced to memorize the wanderings of some fellow called Aeneas while forgetting my own waywardness and to weep over Dido, who killed herself for love, when all the while in my intense misery I put up with myself with never a tear, as I died away from you, O God, who are my life. 
He goes on to describe his experience reading the Aeneid, how he wept for Dido. And it strikes me that he's talking himself out of his experience. And this, well, let's get this out of the way. Last time I said I found him persuasive with one caveat. And it's here, it's this. There are times when I think his desire to glorify God, to have Christianity and God be the driving force underneath his intellectual understanding, makes him less than reliable. Is that fair? Listen to how he concludes this passage. He's talking about the Aeneid, about reading the Aeneid, and he says this. What indeed is more pitiful than a piteous person who has no pity for himself? I could weep over the death Dido brought upon herself out of love for Aeneas, yet I shed no tears over the death I brought upon myself by not loving you. O God, you are the light of my heart, bread for the inward mouth of my soul, the virtue wedded to my mind and the innermost recesses of my thought. Yet I did not love you, and breaking my troth, I strayed away from you. Even in this troth-breaking, the approval of people all around me rang in my ears. Fine, well done. To pander to this world is to fornicate against you, but so loudly do they shout well done that one feels ashamed to fall short of their expectations. For these things I did not weep, yet I wept for Dido, slain as she sought her last end by the sword, while I myself was abandoning you to seek the last dregs of your creation. Dust I was, and unto dust returning." If forbidden to read those tales, I was saddened at being prevented from reading what would sadden me. How insane it is to regard these studies as more civilized and rewarding than the elementary lessons in which I learned to read and write. Do you hear this? He does this for pages and pages, and to my mind, anyway, Augustine sounds more like someone trying to talk himself out of something. We don't get his detailed descriptions of his sexual activities, but my guess is that those passages might work the same way. We get that he has regrets. In hindsight, he wishes he had found God sooner. He wishes he hadn't wasted time. He blames others for praising him for things that didn't matter. But now... He's trying to find reasons for why what he once enjoyed isn't as good as it seemed to him at the time. And I find myself thinking, maybe it was that good. Maybe it was that good. Maybe, if you're being honest, it was. Here's another example. This is where he starts to talk about his first profession, if that's the right word for it, his main endeavor, his academic achievements as a master and teacher of rhetoric. The seedlings of distrust for this practice are already here. Now, I'm going to read a fairly long passage. I want to do Augustine justice because I think you will see how his mind works. This gives you a sense of how he thinks, how he moves from the Christian overlay, the newfound perspective that God has given him, how his later years, his understanding of Christianity, imposes itself on his recollections of his childhood. Allow me to say something, my God, about the intelligence which was your gift to me, and the crazy employments in which I frittered it away. An exercise was set for me which was fraught with worrying implications, for I hoped to win praise and honor if I succeeded. But if not, I ran the risk of being caned. I was required to produce a speech made by Juno, expressing her anger and grief at being unable to repulse the Trojan king from Italy, but in words which I had never heard Juno use. We were obliged to follow the errant footsteps of poetic fantasies and to express in prose what the poet had said in verse. That boy was adjudged the best speaker who most most convincingly suggested emotions of anger and grief and clothed them in apt words as befitted the dignity of the person represented. What did it profit me, O God, my true life, that my speech was acclaimed above those of my many peers and fellow students? Was it not all smoke and wind? 
Was there no other material on which I could have exercised my intelligence and my tongue? Yes, there was. Your praise, O Lord, your praise and the words of the scriptures would have supported the drooping vine of my soul, and then it would not have yielded a crop of worthless fruit for the birds to carry off. Sacrifice can be offered to those birds of prey, the rebel angels, in more ways than one. Small wonder, then, that I was swept off helplessly after profitless things and borne away from you, my God. The models proposed to me for imitation were people who would have been caught out and covered with confusion if they had related any of their doings, deeds not wrong in themselves, in a barbaric accent or with grammatical blunders, whereas to relate licentious deeds in correct and well-turned phrases, in ample and elegant style, would have won them praise and honor. You see this, Lord, but you are very patient and look on silently. You are exceedingly merciful and worthy of our trust. Will you always remain silent? From this vast deep sea, you are even now drawing out to safety a soul that seeks you and thirsts to enjoy you. One whose heart pleads with you, I have sought your face, O Lord, your face will I seek. For at that time I was far away from your countenance in darkness of spirit. Not with our feet or by traversing great distances do we journey away from you or find our way back. That younger son of yours in the gospel did not hire horses or carriages, nor did he board ships, nor take wing in any visible sense, nor put one foot before the other when he journeyed to that far country where he could squander at will the wealth you, his gentle father, had given him at his departure. Gentle you were then, but gentler still with him when he returned in his need. No, to be estranged in a spirit of lust and lost in its darkness, this is what it means to be far away from your face. Look upon all this, O Lord God, and as you look, patiently consider how carefully human beings observe those orthographic conventions and syllabic quantities which they have received from earlier orators, while neglecting the eternal rules directed to unending salvation which they have received from you. A speaker who wishes to maintain and teach those long-standing conventions will give greater offense to his fellow men by pronouncing the word human without sounding the H in defiance of grammatical discipline, than if he, human as he is, flouts your commands by hating a fellow human. Does he suppose that another human being who is his enemy can do him more harm than does the very hatred with which he regards that other person? Or that anyone can do more serious damage to another by hostile behavior than he does to his own soul by harboring hostile intent? Knowledge of letters lies less deep in us than the law written in our conscience, which forbids us to do to another what we would not have done to ourselves. How hidden you are, dwelling on high in your silence, great and only God, who by your unfaltering law spread the punishment of blindness over unlawful human lusts. A man in persistent search of fame pleads before a merely human judge with a crowd of other humans standing round and accuses his adversary with savage hatred. He takes the utmost care that no slip of the tongue betrays him into saying, Them fellows, while caring not a whit that by his rage he is about to remove a fellow human from human society. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, it's a great passage. It's an exemplary passage. Did you hear everything in there? Did you hear the reference to the prodigal son? The parable of the prodigal son was very important to Augustine. It's not difficult to imagine why. This is the Augustine, remember, of give me chastity, but not yet, the famous phrase of his that we talked about last time. If that's your phrase, if that's what summarizes you and your approach to life, Christianity, you could see why the prodigal son would be an important parable to you. Here's what else I gained from that passage. I don't mean to suggest that Augustine is not honest. I think he is. I think he's presenting things as honestly as he can. But he has a frame, a perspective, just like anyone else. His is the frame of someone who has come to believe in Christianity. That's his framework. Just as it is to be a man, to be the son of his parents, to be living in Western culture, to have grown up in Northern Africa during the time that he did, all those things inform the quality and nature of the introspection. It is, for me, a redeeming feature. You have to accept that this is who he was when he was writing it down. And that who he was when he was writing it down is not the same person as who he was when he was experiencing it. Is that difference too subtle? I'm not trying to be fancy. I'm not trying to excuse Augustine if excuses are what it looks like I'm calling for. I'm trying to say that I misread Augustine when I was younger. I viewed the confessions from the wrong end of the telescope. I wanted the young man's truths. I looked at the commentary as being unjustified, or at least only available to someone who already had faith, and that got me nowhere. I didn't want the old man with faith telling me what the young man was learning or should have learned or how he should have thought about something. I wanted to know what the young man was learning and experiencing. Now I'm different. Now I am different. Uh, Now I'm the old man, or I can identify with the old man. Not in the sense that I want to view everything through the Christian prism adopted by Augustine, but because I understand what it means to try to make sense of it all. I can accept that Augustine has found his framework. I have a different one, but I share with Augustine this desire. Being young is about creating memories. Getting older is about trying to make sense of them. When I was young, I thought nothing of traveling to Tibet, journeying with pilgrims, breathing rarefied air, as I circled the holiest mountain in the world. Now, I look at pictures of that guy in my mind, and I wonder who he was, what he was thinking, why he did that, what purpose it served. That's Augustine, steeped in Christianity. But essentially, that's Augustine. Okay, book one is over. On to book two, and listen to how it starts. Book two. Adolescence. Sexual Awakening. Paragraph 1. Now, I want to call to mind the foul deeds I committed, those sins of the flesh that corrupted my soul, not in order to love them, but to love you, my God. Out of love for loving you, I do this, recalling my most wicked ways and thinking over the past with bitterness so that you may grow ever sweeter to me. For you are a sweetness that deceives not, a sweetness blissful and serene. I will try now to give a coherent account of my disintegrated self, for when I turned away from you, the one God, and pursued a multitude of things, I went to pieces. There was a time in adolescence when I was a fire to take my fill of hell. I boldly thrust out rank, luxuriant growth in various furtive love affairs. My beauty wasted away and I rotted in your sight, intent on pleasing myself and winning favor in the eyes of men. What was it that delighted me? Only loving and being loved, but there was no proper restraint, as in the union of mind with mind, where a bright boundary regulates friendship. From the mud of my fleshly desires and my erupting puberty belched out murky clouds that obscured and darkened my heart, until I could not distinguish the calm light of love from the fog of lust. 
The two swirled about together and dragged me, young and weak as I was, over the cliffs of my desires and engulfed me in a whirlpool of sins. Your anger had grown hot at my doings, yet I did not know. I was deafened by that clanking chain of my mortal state, which was the punishment for my soul's pride, and I was wandering away from you. Yet you let me go my way. I was flung hither and thither. I poured myself out, frothed and floundered in the tumultuous sea of my fornications, and you were silent. Oh, my joy, how long I took to find you. At that time you kept silence as I continued to wander far from you and sowed more and more sterile seeds to my own grief, abased by my pride and wearied by my restlessness. There we go. Off with a bang. This is so startling, so stark. He gets right to it. No punches are pulled. It's so excellent. It's so brave. I feel it. It's courage, 1,600 years later. Not because it's explicit, not because it's X-rated or anything like that, but it's courageous and direct and it's admirable. I'd say that Augustine had balls, but come on, that would be a little too easy, wouldn't it? But he did. And he did. That's what makes this so appealing. His energy. He had a lot to lose. He wasn't just some unknown guy some miserable Frenchman deciding to be more explicit than anyone had ever been. He was a church leader, a dignitary, a bishop. A bishop, think about that. We have tell-all autobiographies today. Well, the phrase tell-all sounds pejorative, but think of the honest, soul-searching autobiographies you read today. Who else sacrifices their status and reputation like this? Well, then again, maybe it's more common today than I'm I'm giving it credit for. Maybe what's so startling is that this would have been done in the past. Today, we expect some confession. Today, authors try to sell books. But back then, for a church leader, was there anything close to this in its openness? Any other religious or political figures so bold about their licentiousness? Then he goes on, why didn't someone marry me off? That might have helped. I mentioned mentioned that last time, but I'm mentioning it again because it's amusing. But there's a serious side to it as well. What are we asking of people when we ask them to be chaste? Not to masturbate? To feel guilty about their bodies? To hide their sexuality? Where do we expect them to go? What do we expect to happen? Are we creating unnecessary secrets? and self-torture and illicit behavior. For what purpose? Around this part of the narrative, I wrote down a question in the margin that I'm still trying to figure out. The question is this. Did Augustine's disordered soul lead him to God, which led him to wanting to understand God's laws? Or did Augustine's disordered soul lead him to wanting God's laws, which in turn led him to God. Do you see the difference? If it's the first one, if the waywardness, the trouble, the disquiet gave way to a belief in God, and the belief in God in turn made him want to understand even the nuances and apparent contradictions in the Bible, I'm okay with that. If the God, the belief in God is a sincerely held belief, I can go along with it. Sincerely held beliefs, well, who am I to contradict those? But if it's the other way around, if he had something nagging at him that he was being licentious, if that bothered him, if he was lustful and he wanted to stop but he couldn't, if he was looking for an out, looking for a censor, looking for a straitjacket, and if he found one conveniently in the rules being prescribed in the Bible, and if he then, because he wanted the rules, accepted that God was the overseer of those rules, that's a little different. Because I can go with a God that is out there, who exists, who is there to be discovered. To be discovered, that is, by seekers who are compelled to seek. But if God slips in the back door by people who are looking for something else, for self-help, to get out of a jam, to correct something that they've identified in themselves as wrong or immoral, well, is that a meaningful difference? It is for me. 
and there are times in Augustine where I'm not sure where he stands. For all his marvelous wrestling, his self-debates, his probing and curiosity, he sometimes is opaque on this issue, at least to me. If you have a different understanding, different opinion of this, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. I see it as an open question, but it's one that matters to me. Okay, let's set that aside. That, by the way, is the major caveat that I've been talking about for a couple of episodes now. Let me try to summarize the major caveat. It's the question, did Augustine sincerely believe in God, or was he looking for a set of rules and found those to be the best ones, which he then used to talk himself into believing in God? Let's set that aside. Let's look instead at the next major passage of his youth. He wasn't just lustful, he was proud. And his psychological insightfulness here is very, very good. I'm talking about the pear tree. He leads up to this passage with more about his lust. He was proud of his lust, or the effects of his lust. He bragged about it to friends. And if you don't think this is common male adolescent behavior, then you must have been hanging around some uncommon male adolescents. And then he and his pals go to visit a pear tree. Close to our vineyard, there was a pear tree laden with fruit. This fruit was not enticing, either in appearance or in flavor. We nasty lads went there to shake down the fruit and carry it off at dead of night. After prolonging our games out of doors until that late hour, according to our abominable custom, we took enormous quantities, not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps to throw to the pigs. We did eat a few, but that was not our motive. We derived pleasure from the deed, simply because it was forbidden. Look upon my heart, O God, look upon this heart of mine, on which you took pity in its abysmal depths. Enable my heart to tell you now what it was seeking in this action, which made me bad for no reason, in which there was no motive for my malice except malice. The malice was loathsome, and I loved it. I was in love with my own ruin, in love with decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay, but with decay itself. For I was depraved in soul, and I leapt down from your strong support into destruction, hungering not for some advantage to be gained by the foul deed, but for the foulness of it. What a great passage. What a great passage. We threw it to the pigs. What a great detail. Right there in that simple phrase, Augustine makes his point. We weren't hungry. We weren't in dire straits. We weren't in love with the taste. We were just full of ourselves, conceited, wasteful, self-centered. I think we threw a few to the pigs. Is there ever a better example of some pointless joyride done by some youths? Stealing pears just to throw to the pigs. There's a footnote here in my edition that notes that, by the way, this is the translation by Maria Bolding, which I recommend. There's a footnote in my edition that notes that readers have often been puzzled by this passage because Augustine seems to exaggerate the importance of a fairly harmless childhood prank. The editors note the parallels to the Garden of Eden and the prodigal son, but really, I think there's a more important to be made here about what Augustine is up to. This isn't a neutral observer commenting on the actions of another person's life trying to put them in perspective. This is a guy trying to understand himself. I helped a politician write his autobiography once, and he spent half the book, hundreds of pages, wrestling with the significance of a single phone call, a single moment in time, which for him changed everything he thought about that went before the phone call and everything that he thought about himself that came after. That was what he obsessed about. Those were his themes all in that phone call. He couldn't get it out of his mind. For Augustine, the pear tree was a stand-in for an attitude, a strange moment where he did something unusual and surprising, something that needed to be understood. 
It was his obsession. But autobiographers, introspective autobiographers, have obsessions. If they're any good at all, they do. Because that's being honest. Those, that's how our mind works. Those are the threads we need to pull. It's how our life works. Threads need to be pulled and examined. And here he goes. He talks about how theft is not just against God's law, but, but against human morality. I love arguments like this. If we're atheist or agnostic, how do we know what to follow? If Father in the sky isn't giving us rules, will we all just descend into chaos, murdering and looting? Well, no. We can find laws. We can find them through logic, and we can find them through societal custom and practice. And I'm probably misrepresenting this argument, but you know what I mean. Here's Augustine's logic. Thieves don't want to be stolen from. They're outraged if they are. Right? That's simple. If even a thief, a professional full-time thief, is outraged when someone steals from him or her, then outrage accompanies that action. It's wrong. It's universally wrong. There are probably holes in Augustine's argument, but I like it. Augustine doesn't stop there, of course. He's just getting started with the pear tree. Much of it was in the passage I read, how confused he is by his own desire to do something so needless for no real purpose. But listen to this on friendship. Quote, The life we live here, and here he means here on earth, the life we live here is open to temptation by reason of a certain measure and harmony between its own splendor and all these beautiful things of low degree. End quote. That's a gorgeous sentence. Is it true? The world is beautiful, women are beautiful, pears are beautiful and tasty, and that's why desire exists. Because God made the world so darn awesome. It's an interesting thought. But then listen to this move. Quote, Again, the friendship which draws human beings together in a tender bond is sweet to us, because out of many minds it forges a unity. End quote. Okay. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Friendship, him and his pals, he's identified the core of it, the group mentality, the fun, what I called the joy riding with other youths. It's seductive, it's addictive, and there's something beautiful about it too. It's another beautiful part of the world, friendship and fun. Go watch the Beatles in Hard Day's Night. Either the opening song where they're running to the train, or maybe the Can't Buy Me Love video where they're running through the field, that feeling that feeling. Mike Myers, the actor and comedian Austin Powers, he said he watched the movie when he was a kid and he used to cry when it was over because it meant he couldn't spend time with those guys anymore, the Beatles. That's the feeling. These are my pals. This is my band. We're brothers. We're young and we're carefree and we think alike and we do things together and it's fun. What did George say? Sorry about your field, mister. You could imagine Augustine and his pals saying something similar. Sorry about your field, mister. It was such a great great line in that movie. Who cares what you're doing? People say, get out of my field. That's That's the voice of the old man. Get out of my field. Of course, George Harrison says, sorry about your field, mister. They didn't hurt the field. And the objection wasn't to what they were doing in the field to the field. The objection was the older person saying, stop having so much fun and so much freedom and so much energy. You're making me feel my own mortality. I've decided it's time to settle down. I don't want to be reminded that I once thought the way you did. Sorry about your field, mister. Sorry about your pears. We threw a few to the pigs. There was a lot on that tree. There's still a lot. Get over it. You can imagine that being the attitude. And the Augustine and his pals laughing. Being young and carefree is a beautiful thing, but it sometimes leads to ugliness, like shaking down a pear tree where things don't belong to us. Or worse, sometimes it's not a band, sometimes it's a gang, sometimes it's a group full of hate. Not here in Augustine, 
Even so, there's a downside. Listen to the next sentence. Quote, The friendship which draws human beings together in a tender bond is sweet to us because out of many minds it forges a unity. That's the sentence I read before. Here's the next one. Sin gains entrance through these and similar good things when we turn to them with immoderate desire, since they are the lowest kind of goods, and we thereby turn away from the better and higher, from you yourself, O Lord our God, and your truth and your law. This is back to my major caveat. Is this right? Sin gains entrance through good things, and here he means not just the pairs, but the feeling of fraternity. He makes that clear in the next several paragraphs. He argues not all that persuasively, that greed is at the heart of most sins and crimes, that nobody kills for the sake of killing, but to get something they want. I'd say in these arguments, he's about 75% correct. He just doesn't go far enough. There are people who kill for the sake of killing. Maybe he hadn't had enough experience, enough real-life examples to examine. If Augustine had had the internet, maybe he'd have gotten more things right. Maybe. But what gets me here is the step he is unwilling to take. He refuses to give God any blame for this. Think about it. God created humans. God set all this up. God set up the beautiful world and the hunger and the taste buds and the friendship and the excitement and the lustfulness. That's all part of God's world, God's creation. Okay. So maybe God wanted individuals to have free will because without free will, choices never mean anything. But God wanted that too, right? He wanted the choices to be exactly as hard as they are. Not harder, not easier. Did you ever think about that? The choices that we're faced with, the temptations, they could be harder or easier than they are. More difficult to resist or easier to resist, but they are exactly as hard as they are. God put all that in place, didn't he? Anyway, here's what Augustine says, and here's one of the things where I was scratching my head, writing things in the margin, question marks, Augustine asked, quote, What could be more innocent than you, God, who leave the wicked to be bounded by their own sins? End quote. The wicked, bounded by their own sins. Where's the love in that? Where's the mercy? Leave the wicked. The wicked should be embraced, carefully monitored, helped. Who cares about rewarding the good? Give them a ticket to heaven. That's enough. But the wicked, why would an omnipotent, all-loving God just leave them in their own sin? How can Augustine think that? Who's being cold here? Augustine? God? Both. So, I depart from Augustine here. I, Jack Wilson... (laughs) Poor Augustine, he'll never be the same now that the world knows that Jack Wilson, of all people, disagrees with him. Talk about pride. But that's the podcaster's privilege that I am claiming for myself. I'm not closing the book, though, The Confessions, because I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying Augustine's journey and his reasons and his logic and his conclusions, even when I disagree. He calls forth all my powers. Do you remember that phrase? I think it was in episode zero. Dr. Johnson gave it to us. We use it freely here on the History of Literature. And here's why I can't give up Augustine. Not yet. Listen to this paragraph. This is where he closes the chapter on his adolescence. He'll be heading off to Carthage in the next book, where he's a student. The subtitle of the next passage, Student Life, Sex, and Shows. That's it. That's it. Student life, colon, sex and shows. Is that what you expect from a bishop writing in 397 AD? It's fascinating. But that's in the next book. We're still closing out book two, The Adolescent Years. Here's how he wraps up the pear tree incident and his description of his early lustful life. Who can unravel this most snarled, knotty tangle It is disgusting, and I do not want to look at it or see it. O justice and innocence, fair and lovely, it is on you that I want to gaze with eyes that see purely and find satiety in never being sated. With you is rest and tranquil life, 
Whoever enters into you enters the joy of his Lord. There he will fear nothing and find his own supreme good in God, who is supreme goodness. I slid away from you and wandered away, my God, far from your steadfastness. I strayed in adolescence, and I became to myself a land of famine. Simply marvelous. Would prose like that, well, count me in. This is why I say Augustine deserves credit as the inventor of today's autobiography. The introspection here is just sensational. An introspection, finding what's important to one's inner life. That's the hallmark of an autobiography as we understand it today, isn't it? In this paragraph I read, I'm tempted to stop there. Augustine is the wanderer looking at the knotty tangle, the wrestler. He's applying his teachings, his philosophical convictions, his hard-won beliefs to the thorniest passages of his life. That's what good autobiographers do. Today it's no big deal. Maybe it's no big deal because of Augustine. I promised five themes and a culminating passage that unites them all. We've gone through four of them, and I've touched on the fifth. Let's talk about the fifth and use it to show something I've been meaning to explore further. I think I called it intellectual suspense last time. Hmm. What does that mean? It means Augustine defers conclusions. We see the struggles in real time. We know that Augustine, well, real time, something like real time. We know that Augustine will find God. We know that from the very first paragraph, but he nevertheless builds suspense in different beliefs, different threads of the philosophy partial arguments, different threads of his interactions with others, like his relationship with his mother, Monica. Monica's an unusual figure. She's a Christian, rock solid in her beliefs. Augustine admires her deeply, even when he doesn't subscribe to her views. And yet, he does some strange things. He deceives her about his travels, tells her he's headed somewhere for a few days, parks her in a church where she's going to pray, and then he takes off for Italy. She finds him. It's a, it's a strange relationship. And yet at the same time, you wonder what's going to happen, how it's going to resolve itself. Monica comes in and out of the narrative, and you wonder if he's going to reconcile with her, if he's going to inform her of his beliefs, and what will happen when he does. It's suspenseful. The same thing happens with his consideration of evil. He doesn't just set forth his views on evil. He shows how they evolved. At different times in his life, he held different views. This is what I meant when I said we see the struggles in real time. We see them at different stages of his life. He explains why he held each belief at that stage and what still troubled him about it. It's a fantastic way to keep the reader's attention. He doesn't walk all the way through the argument in steps. He does one step at a time, the step that most reflected where he thought at that time in his life. I was completely riveted. As I turned the pages, I wanted to know each twist and turn of his mind, the way it was viewing those particular arguments, where he left off the question that still nagged at him, and how he returned to the question, pushed it a little further, later. And of course, I wanted to know what happened in his relationship with his mother, Monica. So those are the five themes. We've covered them all now. And we've gone, chronologically, we've gone from Rome to Milan. He meets Ambrose, the silent reader. He gets closer and closer to Christianity. And at the same time, he gets more and more frustrated with his profession, the profession of rhetoric. It's all lies. It's more and more frustrated with his sins. He can't stop loving women. And just the inability to put any of this to the side. He's bottoming out, but in a curious way. It's almost like his own mind is bottoming out, but not in a degenerate sense, the sense we associate it with, with addiction. It's like his mind is reaching a kind of fever pitch. It's an ecstatic bottoming out. The yearning becomes unbearable, the desire to rest in certainty, the need to know, the need to be in control, to find the answers, to rest 
to rest the disordered soul. But it's really a disordered mind, too. A mind full of questions that don't have answers, loose ends that aren't tied up, and a body that's not under the mind's control. It's agony. It's sheer agony. This takes us all the way to book eight. We're nearing the end of the autobiographical portion of the book. And we get this. First, here's the agony, the misery, the fever pitch, as described by Augustine. But as this deep meditation dredged all my wretchedness up from the secret profundity of my being and heaped it all together before the eyes of my heart, a huge storm blew up within me and brought on a heavy rain of tears. In order to pour them out unchecked with the sobs that accompanied them, I arose and left my friend Alepius, for solitude seemed to me more suitable for the business of weeping. I withdrew far enough to ensure that his presence, even his, would not be burdensome to me. This was my need, and he understood it, for I think I had risen to my feet and blurted out something, my voice already choked with tears. He accordingly remained in stunned amazement at the place where we had been sitting. I flung myself down somehow under a fig tree and gave free rein to the tears that burst from my eyes like rivers as an acceptable sacrifice to you. Many things I had to say to you, and the gist of them, though not the precise words, was, O Lord, how long, how long will you be angry forever? Do not remember our age-old sins. For by these I was conscious of being held prisoner. I uttered cries of misery. Why must I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not put an end to my depravity this very hour? What happens? What happens to this man flinging himself on the ground under the fig tree while his friend watches in amazement, begging for something to happen immediately? Reversal here of his famous phrase, give me chastity but not yet. Here he's begging, now, why not now? Why do I have to wait? What happens? Don't you want to know? Here we go. This is one of the most famous passages in all of literature. I went on talking like this and weeping in the intense bitterness of my broken heart. Suddenly, I heard a voice from a house nearby, perhaps a voice of some boy or girl I do not know, singing over and over again, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. My expression immediately altered, and I began to think hard whether children ordinarily repeated a ditty like this in any sort of game, but I could not recall ever having heard it anywhere else. I stemmed the flood of tears and rose to my feet, believing that this could be nothing other than a divine command to open the book and read the first passage I chanced upon, for I had heard the story of how Antony had been instructed by a gospel text. He happened to arrive while the gospel was being read and took the words to be addressed to himself when he heard, Go and sell all you possess and give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So he was promptly converted to you by this plainly divine message. Stung into action, I returned to the place where Olypius was sitting, for on leaving it I had put down there the book of the Apostles' letters. I snatched it up, opened it, and read in silence the passage on which my eyes first lighted. Not in dissipation and drunkenness, nor in debauchery and lewdness, nor in arguing and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh or the gratification of your desires. I had no wish to read further, nor was there need. No sooner had I reached the end of the verse Then the light of certainty flooded my heart, and all dark shades of doubt fled away.
And what does he do next? There's a a quick interlude where the friend interjects himself, which <laughs> points out Olypius. He told Olypius what happens. Olypius points out that the next line says, make room for the person who is weak in faith. It says, here we can, we can, we can still be friends. Augustine, I know you're, you've had your epiphany and all, but look, there's room for me in here too. <laughs> Just kind of humorous. But then the next major thing that happens, Augustine goes to tell Monica, his mother, who's been waiting patiently all this time, hoping in the depths of her soul that her beloved son would come to believe in the faith that she herself has made her life. It's a beautiful passage when Augustine goes to talk to Monica. You should really read it for yourself, and you should earn your way to that passage by reading the whole book. It's only a couple of hundred pages. Maybe you'll be inspired. Maybe you'll convert. But maybe you'll just be inspired, and that's okay too. So here we have all five themes in this passage. Let me repeat the themes. Augustine and God. Augustine and Monica. Augustine and reading. Augustine and friendship and Augustine, and lust. All five are present here, infusing this passage with significance. And the significance, the inspiration, is not just that Augustine has found God and we're rooting for that by this time, and because not all of us do root for that necessarily. It's a mistake to think that this is only a book for Christians to try to read for the purpose of emulating Augustine or or drawing their own conversion story or their faith drawing upon Augustine's story to reach their own point in their spiritual journey. The inspiration is not just of a human finding God. It's a human finding out his own needs, what it means to be an intellectual wasteland, a land of famine onto oneself, and then to find some peace and harmony and joy at the end of that spiritual journey. It's about Augustine pillar of the church, and God. But it's also about Augustine, lowly human, and himself. That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. It's Sunday here, how perfect, and it's cloudy and thunderstorming, and that's a little perfect too. Oh, that might be blasphemous. Maybe I'm still on the path, forever destined to be in the land of famine. Enough about me, let's talk about my website, jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. You can find more there, and also at historyofliterature.com. There's a Facebook page now too, I'm trying to keep that more freshened up than it was before. I'm rolling through the back catalog. Somehow I failed to post all those before. I hope you've been able to find all the episodes. Hey, speaking of which, the easiest way to find all the episodes and to make sure you don't miss one is to subscribe. I would appreciate it if you did. I'll even throw in a few extra episodes for free. Who am I kidding? They're all free. And no ads, at least for the time being. Unless you count all this fish selling I do. Ugh. Distasteful, but necessary. Trying to keep the lights on here at the History of Literature. While you're there subscribing, I'm assuming that you're going to do that. While you're there subscribing, feel free to offer your feedback to the world through a rating or a review. Or you can share your thoughts directly with me at jackwilsonauthor.com at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson author, at gmail.com. Okay, that's it for now. Episodes on Javier Marias and the great Hemingway-Fitzgerald debate coming up soon. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.